How Christians Should Regard Moses, a sermon by Martin Luther from August 27, 1525. This translation is in the public domain. Dear friends, you have often heard that there has never been a public sermon from heaven except twice. Apart from them, God has spoken many times through and with men on earth, as in the case of the holy patriarchs Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and others, down to Moses. But in none of these cases did he speak with such glorious splendor, visible reality, or public cry and exclamation as he did on these two occasions. Rather, God illuminated their heart within and spoke through their mouth, as Luke indicates in the first chapter of his gospel, where he says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Luke chapter 1, verse 70. Now, the first sermon is in Exodus 19 and 20. By it, God caused himself to be heard from heaven with great splendor and might, for the people of Israel heard the trumpets and the voice of God himself. In the second place, God delivered a public sermon through the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, Acts 2, verses 2 through 4. On that occasion, the Holy Spirit came with great splendor and visible impressiveness, such that there came from heaven the sudden rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled the entire house where the apostles were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributed and resting on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to preach and speak in other tongues. This happened with great splendor and glorious might, so that thereafter the apostles preached so powerfully that the sermons which we hear in the world today are hardly a shadow compared to theirs, so far as the visible splendor and substance of their sermon is concerned. For the apostles spoke in all sorts of languages, performed great miracles, etc., Yet through our preachers, today the Holy Spirit does not cause himself to be either heard or seen, nothing coming down openly from heaven. This is why I have said that there are only two such special and public sermons which have been seen and heard from heaven. To be sure, God spoke also to Christ from heaven when he was baptized in the Jordan, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, and at the transfiguration on Mount Tabor, Matthew 17, verse 5. However, none of this took place in the presence of the general public. God wanted to send that second sermon into the world, for it had earlier been announced by the mouth and by the books of the holy prophets. He will no longer speak that way publicly through sermons. Instead, in the third place, he will come in person with divine glory, so that all creatures will tremble and quake before him. Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 27. And then he will no longer preach to them, but they will see and handle him himself. Luke chapter 24, verse 39. Now, the first sermon and doctrine is the law of God, the second is the gospel. These two sermons are not the same, therefore we must have a good grasp of the matter in order to know the difference between them. We must know what the law is and what the gospel is. The law commands and requires us to do certain things. The law thus is directed solely to our behavior and consists in making requirements. For God speaks through the law saying, do this, avoid that, this is what I expect of you. The gospel, however, does not preach what we are to do or to avoid. It sets up no requirements, but reverses the approach of the law, does the very opposite, and says, This is what God has done for you. He has let his Son be made flesh for you, and has let him be put to death for your sake. So then, there are two kinds of doctrine and two kinds of works, those of God and those of men. Just as we and God are separated from one another, so also these two doctrines are widely separated from one another. For the gospel teaches exclusively what has been given us by God, and not in the case of the law, what we are to do and give to God. We now want to see how this first sermon sounded forth and with what splendor God gave the law on Mount Sinai. He selected the place where he wanted to be seen and heard. Not that God actually spoke, for he has no mouth, tongue, teeth, or lips as we do, 
But he who created and formed the mouth of all men, Exodus 4, verse 11, can also make speech and the voice. For no one would be able to speak a single word unless God first gave it. As the prophet said, it would be impossible to speak except God first put it into our mouth. Numbers 22, verse 38. Language, speech, and the voice are thus gifts of God like any other gift, such as the fruit on the trees. Now he who fashioned the mouth and put speech in it can also make a new speech, even though there is no mouth present. Now the words which are here written are spoken through an angel. This is not to say one angel was there, for there were a great multitude that were serving God and preaching to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. The angel, however, who spoke here and did the talking, spoke just as if God himself were speaking, and saying, I am your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, etc. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. As if Peter or Paul were speaking in God's stead, and saying, I am your God, etc. in this letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, verse 19. Paul says that the law was ordained by the angels, that is, angels were assigned in God's behalf to give the law of God, and Moses, as an intermediary, received it from the angels. I say this so that you might know who gave the law. He did this to them, however, because he wanted thereby to compel, burden, and press the Jews. What kind of voice was that, you may well imagine? It was a voice like the voice of a man, such that it was actually heard. The syllables and letters thus made sounds which the physical ear was able to pick up. But it was a bold, glorious, and great voice, as told in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12. The people heard the voice but saw no one. They heard a powerful voice, for he spoke in a powerful voice, as if in the dark we should hear a voice from a high tower or a rooftop and could see no one but only hear a strong voice of a man. And this is why it is called the voice of God, because it was above human voice. Now you will hear how God used the voice in order to arouse his people and make them brave, for he intended to institute the tangible and spiritual government. It was previously stated, on the advice of Jethro, his father-in-law, Moses had established the temporal government and appointed rulers and judges, Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 through 26. Beyond that, there is yet a spiritual kingdom in which Christ rules in the heart of men. This kingdom we cannot see because it consists only in faith and will continue until the last day. These are the two kingdoms, the temporal, which governs with the sword and is visible, and the spiritual, which governs solely with the grace and forgiveness of sins. Between these two kingdoms, still another has been placed in the middle, half spiritual and half temporal. It is constituted by the Jews with commandments and outward ceremonies, which prescribe their conduct toward God and man. Here the law of Moses has its place. It is no longer binding on us because it was given only to the people of Israel, and Israel accepted the law for itself and its descendants, while the Gentiles were excluded. To be sure, the Gentiles have certain laws in common with the Jews, such as these. There is only one God, no one is to do wrong to another, no one is to commit adultery or murder or steal, and others like them. This was written by nature into their hearts. They did not hear it straight from heaven as the Jews did. This is why this entire text does not pertain to the Gentiles. I say this on account of the enthusiasts. For you see and hear how they read Moses, extol him, and bring him up the way he ruled the people with the commandments. They try to be clever and think that they know something more than is presented in the gospel. So they minimize faith, contrive something new, and boastfully claim that it comes from the Old Testament. They desire to govern the people according to the letter of the law of Moses, as if no one had ever read it before. But we will not have this sort of thing. We would rather not preach again for the rest of our life than to let Moses return and let Christ be torn out of our hearts. We will not have Moses as our ruler and lawgiver any longer. Indeed, God himself would not have it either. Moses was an intermediary solely for the Jewish people. We must therefore silence the mouths of those fastiest spirits who say, Thus says Moses, etc. 
Here you must simply reply, Moses has nothing to do with us. If I were to accept Moses in one commandment, I would have to accept the entire Moses. Thus, the consequence would be that if I accept Moses as master, then I must have myself circumcised, wash my clothes in the Jewish way, eat and drink and dress thus and so, and observe all that stuff. So then, we will neither observe nor accept Moses. Moses is dead. His rule ended when Christ came. He is of no further service. That Moses does not bind the Gentiles can be proven from Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, when God himself speaks, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. This text makes it clear that even the Ten Commandments do not pertain to us, for God never led us out of Egypt, but only the Jews. The sectarian spirits want to saddle us with Moses and all the commandments. We will just skip that. We will regard Moses as a teacher, but we will not regard him as our lawgiver, unless he agrees with both the New Testament and the natural law. Therefore, it is clear enough that Moses is the lawgiver of the Jews and not of the Gentiles. He has given the Jews a sign whereby they should lay hold of God. When they call upon him as the God who brought them out of Egypt, the Christians have a different sign whereby they conceive of God as the one who gave his son, etc. Again, one can prove it from the third commandment, that Moses does not pertain to the Gentiles and the Christians. For Paul, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, and the New Testament, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, John chapter 5, verse 16, John chapter 7, verses 22 through 23, John chapter 9, verses 14 through 16, abolish the Sabbath to show us that the Sabbath was given to the Jews alone, for whom it was a stern commandment. The prophets refer to it too, that the Sabbath of the Jews would be abolished, for Isaiah says this in his last chapter. When the Savior comes, then such will be the time, one Sabbath after the other, one month after the other, etc. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 23. This is as though he were trying to say, it will be the Sabbath every day, and the people will be such that they will make no distinction between days. For in the New Testament, the Sabbath is annihilated as regards to the crude external observance, for every day is a holy day, etc. Now, if anyone confronts you with Moses and his commandments and wants to compel you to keep them, simply answer, Go to the Jews with your Moses. I am no Jew. Do not entangle me with Moses. If I accept Moses in one respect, Paul tells the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 3, then I am obligated to keep the entire law, for not one little period in Moses pertains to us. In the first place, I dismiss the commandments given to the people of Israel. They neither urge nor compel me. They are dead and gone. As if I said, this is how Moses ruled, and it seemed fine to me, so I will follow him in this or that particular. I would even be glad if today's lords ruled according to the example of Moses. If I were emperor, I would take from Moses a model for my statutes. Not that Moses should be binding on me, but that I should be free to follow him in ruling as he ruled. For example, tithing is a very fine rule, because with giving of the tenth, all other taxes would be eliminated. For the ordinary man, it would be easier to give a tenth than to pay rent and fees. Suppose I had ten cows, I would then give one. If I only had five, I would give nothing. If my field were yielding only a little, I would give proportionately little. If it were much, I would give much. All this would be in God's providence. But as things are now, I must pay the Gentile tax, even if the hail should ruin my entire crop. If I owe a hundred golden in taxes, I must pay it, even though there may be nothing growing in the field. This is also the way the Pope decrees and governs. But it would be better if things were so arranged that when I raise much, I give much, and when little, I give little. Again, in Moses, it must also be stipulated that no man would sell his field into perpetual estate, but only up to the Jubilee year. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 55. When that year came, every man returned to the field or possessions which he had sold. In this way, the possessions remained in the family relationship. 
There are also other extraordinary fine roles in Moses, which we should accept, use, and put into effort. Not that one should bind or be bound by them, but, as I said earlier, the emperor could take an example for setting up good government on the basis of Moses, just like the Romans conducted good government, and just like the Saxon Spiegel, by which affairs are ordered in this land of ours. The Gentiles are not obligated to obey Moses. Moses is a Saxon Spiegel for the Jews. But if an example of good government were to be taken from Moses, one could adhere to it without obligation as long as one pleased, etc. Again, Moses says, If a man dies without children, then his brother or closest relative should take the widow into his home and have her to wife, and thus raise up offspring for the deceased brother or relative. The first child thus born was credited to the deceased brother or relative. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5-6. through So it came about that one man had many wives. Now this is also a very good rule. When these fascist spirits come, however, and say, Moses has commanded it, then simply drop Moses and reply, I'm not concerned with what Moses commands. Yes, they say, he has commanded that we should have one God, that we should trust and believe in him, that we should not swear by his name, that we should honor father and mother, not kill, steal, commit adultery, not bear false witness, not covet, Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 17. Should we not keep these commandments? You reply, Nature also has given us these laws. Nature provides that we should call upon God. The Gentiles attest to this fact, for there was never a Gentile who did not call upon his idols, even though these were not the true God. This happens also among the Jews, for they had their idols, as did the Gentiles. Only the Jews have received the law. The Gentiles have it written on their heart, and there is no distinction. Romans chapter 3, verse 22. As St. Paul shows in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, the Gentiles who have no law have the law written in their hearts. But just as the Jews fail, so also do the Gentiles. Therefore, it is natural to honor God, not steal, not commit adultery, not bear false witness, not murder. And what Moses commands is nothing new. For what God has given the Jews from heaven, he has also written in the hearts of all men. Thus, I keep the commandments which Moses has given, not because Moses gave the commandments, but because they have been implanted in me by nature, and Moses agrees with nature, etc. But the other commandments of Moses, which are not implanted in all men by nature, the Gentiles do not hold, nor do these pertain to the Gentiles, such as the tithe and others equally fine, which I wish we had too. Now this is the first thing that I ought to see in Moses, namely the commandments to which I am not bound except insofar as they are implanted in everyone by nature and written on everyone's heart. In the second place, I find something in Moses that I do not have from nature, the promises and pledges of God about Christ. This is the best thing. It is something that is not written naturally into the heart, but comes from heaven. God has promised, for example, that his son should be born in the flesh. This is what the gospel proclaims. It is not the commandments. And it is the most important thing in Moses which pertains to us. The first thing, namely the commandments, does not pertain to us. I read Moses because such excellent and comforting promises are there recorded, by which I can find strength for my weak faith. For things take place in the kingdom of Christ, just as I read in Moses that they will. Therein I find also my sure foundation. In this manner, therefore, I should accept Moses and not sweep him under the rug, first because he provides a fine example of laws from which excerpts may be taken. Second, in Moses there are promises of God which sustain faith. As it is written of Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, etc. Again, Abraham was given this promise by God, speaking thus in Genesis 22, verse 18. In your descendants shall all the nations be blessed. That is, through Christ the gospel is to arise. 
Again, in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 16, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brethren, him you shall heed, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on that day of the assembly, etc. Many of these texts in the Old Testament, which the Holy Apostles quoted and drew upon, but our factious spirits go ahead and say of everything they find in Moses, Here, God is speaking. No one can deny it. Therefore, we must keep it. So then the rabble will go to it. Whew! If God said it, who then will say anything against it? Then they are really pressed hard like pigs at the trough. Our dear prophets have chattered thus into the minds of the people. Dear people, God has ordered his people to beat Amalek to death, Exodus chapter 17, 8 through 16, and Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. Misery and tribulation have come out of this sort of thing. The peasants have arisen not knowing the difference and have been led into this error by those insane factious spirits. Had there been educated preachers around, they could have stood up to the false prophets and stopped them and said to them, Dear factious spirits, it is true that God commanded this of Moses and spoke thus to the people. But we are not this people. Land, God also spoke to Adam, but that does not make me Adam. God commanded Abraham to put his son to death, Genesis 22, verse 2. But this does not make me Abraham and obligate me to put my son to death. God also spoke with David. It is all God's word, but let God's word be what it may. I must pay attention and know to whom God's word is addressed. You are still a long way from being the people with whom God spoke. The false prophets say, you are that people. God is speaking to you. You must prove that to me. With talk like that, these factious spirits could have been refuted, but they wanted to be beaten. And so the rabble went to the devil. One must deal cleanly with the scriptures. From the very beginning, the word has come to us in various ways. It is not enough simply to look at it and to see whether this is God's word, whether God has said it. Rather, we must look at it and see to whom it has been spoken, whether it fits us. That makes all the difference between night and day. God said to David, Out of you shall come the king, etc. 2 Samuel 7 verse 13. But this does not pertain to me, nor has it been spoken to me. He can indeed speak to me if he chooses to do so. You must keep your eye on the word that applies to you, that is spoken to you. The word in scripture is of two kinds. The first does not pertain or apply to me. The other kind does. And upon that word, which does pertain to me, I can boldly trust and rely as upon a strong rock. But if it does not pertain to me, then I should stand still. The false prophets pitch in and say, Dear people, this is the word of God. That is true. We cannot deny it. But we are not the people. God has not given us the directive. The factious spirits came in and wanted to stir up something new, saying we must keep the Old Testament also. So they led the peasants into a sweat and ruined them in wife and child. These insane people imagined that it had been withheld from them, that no one had told them that they are not supposed to murder. It serves them right. They would not follow or listen to anybody. I have seen and experienced it myself, how mad, raving, and senseless they are. Therefore, tell this to Moses. Leave Moses and his people together. They have had their day, and it does not pertain to me. I listen to the word which applies to me. We have the gospel. Christ says, go and preach the gospel, not only to the Jews as Moses did, but to all nations, to all creatures, Mark 16, 15. To me, it is said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. Again, go and do to your neighbor as it has been done to you, Matthew 7, verse 12. These words strike me too, for I am one of all creatures. If Christ had not added, preach to all creatures, then I would not listen, would not be baptized, just as I now will not listen to Moses, because he is given not to me, but only to the Jews. 
However, because Christ says, not to one people, nor in this or that place in the world, but to all creatures, there is no one exempt. Rather, all are thereby included. No one should doubt that to him, too, the gospel is to be preached. And so I believe that the word, it does pertain also to me. I too belong under the gospel in this new covenant. Therefore, I put my trust in that word, even if it should cost a hundred thousand lives. This distinction should be noticed, grasped, and taken to heart by those preachers who would teach others, indeed by all Christians, for everything depends entirely upon it. If the peasants had understood it this way, they would have salvaged much and would not have been so pitifully misled and ruined. And where we understand it differently, there we make sects and factions slavering among the rabble and into the raving and uncomprehending people without any distinction, saying, God's word, God's word. But my dear fellow, the question is whether it was said to you. God indeed speaks also to angels, wood, fish, birds, and animals, and all creatures, but this does not make it pertain to me. I should pay attention to that which applies to me, that which is said to me, in which God admonishes, drives, and requires something of me. Here is an illustration. Suppose a house father had a wife, a daughter, a son, a maid, and a hired man. Now he speaks to the hired man and orders him to hitch up the horses and bring a load of wood or drive over to the field or do some other job. And suppose he tells the maid to milk the cows, churn the butter, and so on. Suppose he tells his wife to take care of the kitchen and his daughter to do some spinning and to make the beds. All this would be the words of one master, one house father. Suppose now that the maid decided that she wanted to drive the horse and fetch the wood, and the hired man sat down and began milking the cows. The daughter wanted to drive the wagon or plow the field. The wife took a notion to make the beds or spin, or so forgot all about the kitchen. And then they all said, The master has commanded us this. These are the house father's orders. Then what? Then the house father would grab a club and knock them all in a heap and say, Although it is my command, yet I have not commanded it of you. I gave each of you your instructions. You should have stuck to them. It is like this with the word of God. Suppose I take up something that God ordered someone else to do, and then I declare, But you said to do it. God would answer, Let the devil thank you. I did not tell you to do it. One must distinguish well whether the word pertains to only one or to everybody. If now the house father should say, on Friday we are going to eat meat, this would be a word common to everyone in the house. Thus what God said to Moses by way of commandment is for the Jews only, but the gospel goes out to the whole world in its entirety. It is offered to all creatures without exception. Therefore all the world should accept it, and accept it as if it had been offered to each person individually. The word, we should love one another, John 15 verse 12, pertains to me, for it pertains to all who belong to the gospel. Thus, we read Moses not because he applies to us that we must obey him, but because he agrees with the natural law and is conceived better than the Gentiles would ever have been able to do. Thus, the Ten Commandments are a mirror of our life in which we can see wherein we are lacking, etc. The sectarian spirits have misunderstood also with respect to the images, for that too pertains only to the Jews. Summing up the second part, we read Moses for the sake of the promises about Christ, who belong not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. For through Christ, all Gentiles should have the blessing as was promised to Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 3. In the third place, we read Moses for the beautiful examples of faith, of love, and of the cross as shown in the fathers Adam, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and all the rest. From them, we should learn to trust in God and love him. 
In turn, there are also examples of the godless, how God does not pardon the unfaith of the unbelieving, how he can punish Cain, Ishmael, Esau, the whole world in the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, etc. Examples like these are necessary, for although I am not Cain, yet if I should act like Cain, I will receive the same punishment as Cain. Nowhere else do we find such fine examples of both faith and unfaith. Therefore, we should not sweep Moses under the rug. Moreover, the Old Testament is thus properly understood when we retain from the prophets the beautiful texts about Christ, when we take note of and thoroughly grasp the fine examples, and when we use the laws as we please to our advantage. I have stated that all Christians, and especially those who handle the Word of God and attempt to teach others, should take heed and learn Moses aright. Thus, when he gives the commandments, we are not to follow him except so far as he agrees with the natural law. Moses is a teacher and a doctor of the Jews. We have our own master, Christ, and he has set before us what we are to know, observe, and leave undone. However, it is true that Moses sets down, in addition to the laws, fine examples of faith and unfaith, punishment of the godless, elevation of the righteous and believing, and also dear and comforting promises concerning Christ, which we should accept. The same is also true in the gospel. For example, the account of the ten lepers that Christ bids them to go to the priest and make sacrifice, Luke 17 verse 14, does not pertain to me. The example of their faith, however, does pertain to me. I should believe Christ as did they. Enough now has been said of this, and it is to be noted well, for it is really crucial. Many great and outstanding people missed it, while even today many great preachers still stumble over it. They do not know how to preach Moses, nor how to properly regard his books. They are absurd and rage and fume, chattering to the people, God's word, God's word, all while they mislead poor people and drive them to destruction. Many learned men have not known how far Moses ought to be taught. Origen, Jerome, and others like them have not shown clearly how far Moses can really serve us. This is what I have attempted to say in an introduction to Moses, how we should regard him, and how he should be understood and received, and not simply swept under the rug. For in Moses there is comprehended such a fine order that it is a joy, etc. God be praised. The sermon which you just heard, How Christians Should Regard Moses, was written by Martin Luther. This version was translated and edited by E. Theodore Bachman in Luther's works, Word and Sacrament 1, Volume 35, Philadelphia, Muhlenberg Press, 1960. This translation is in the public domain.